Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of the modern architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, this is Tom Dioro. Thank you, Shay. For our guest today, please welcome Clark Manis, architect and principal of Heller Manis, an architecture firm dedicated to more than 25 years of developing a diversified, client-oriented firm that is a design and sustainability leader in the profession. Find out more at hellermanis.com. That is hellermanis.com. Hello, Clark. We're excited to have you on The Modern Architect today. Hey, Tom. How are you? I'm very, very happy to be here with you. Oh, we're happy you're here, Clark. Clark, tell us how long you've been an architect with with Heller Manis and how you came about being so interested in architecture. I know that might be a, a lot, but start wherever you feel uh, you feel right. So um, 40 years, hard to believe, as a practicing architect. Nice. Uh, my parents would tell you that I had the knack when I was 12 years old helping them to design a closet, which, you know, as most children would test, is really a, a strange thing. Uh, and uh, the starting point, really, I would say, is my father being a psychologist, I was really interested in environmental design and people's environments and uh, it provided me an opportunity uh, as an undergraduate to get a degree in environmental design and psychology and then I felt that in order to be able to use it, I went to graduate school to become an architect and so that was the beginning of my career. Oh, awesome. So you helped, you started to design the closet and the psychology, I think that may, we may touch on that a bit uh, during this uh, during our show about how much psychology and architecture may be linked. A lot. My, my, my wife would say that I wouldn't have made a great psychologist like my father, but I do actually sort of feel that in designing buildings and spaces that psychology and people's reactions is really a key part of that. So, yeah. 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 What, what type of buildings or projects have you worked on in, say, the last 10 years with uh, Heller Manis? So um, our practice does everything but hospitals and jails, Um, only because they are a very specialized niche. And we have done uh, 
highly complex urban projects. Uh, overwhelmingly in San Francisco, they may be high-rise uh, office buildings, residential buildings, even institutional buildings like the renovation of San Francisco City Hall or the 911 Center, or even uh, a little further afield in some projects that are for universities like UC uh, Berkeley or UC Davis, I'm sorry, UC Merced, but in any case, they are pretty diverse profile of projects that we like to do. Very, very, we always look for projects that have an interesting aspect and are not replicatable and are really context rich. So that's really the, the character of the, the practice that we've developed for um, more than uh, 32 years. 32. Now, how, how did you meet uh, Jeff? So did you, did you guys uh, Jeff, school together? Yeah. No, um, Jeff's a little older than me. Um, I decided, uh, or my wife and I decided in the early 80s after having um, gone to graduate school in Philadelphia and lived there, that we were going to move to California. My parents had actually moved to San Francisco 10 years before uh, my wife and I. Uh, and so we decided uh, when our son was about a year and a half old that we wanted to see what California California was like. So I applied for a job uh, with a firm uh, in San Francisco. My partner, Heller, was one of the partners there. So I have been working with him for the entire time that I have been in California. And when he decided uh, three years after I started with that other firm that he wanted to leave, um, leave the firm and start his own firm, he asked me to join him. So we have been working together with the firm for the entire time uh, that the firm has existed. So very long thing. I would just describe as some of you might know, it's sort of like uh, your brother. You know, okay. I, yes. I only have a sister. You know, we're, <laughs> we are uh, great at supporting each other and also critical of each other's faults. Yeah. Uh, so very much like any other sibling in life. Yeah. A lot of your work, is it in San Francisco, the United States? I know also you're doing work overseas. I would say overwhelmingly in the Bay Area, overwhelmingly okay. in San Francisco, projects on the peninsula, projects in Emeryville, uh, a tower in uh, Detroit, a city hall in Orlando, and probably a whole range of projects across China in the course of the last 12 years. So I would say heavily uh, regional, California-based with a big sort of um, uh, offshoot of work in China as well. So um, we, again, we really like it. And we, we are... Uh, I would say we are unusual in the sort of architectural mix in that we are a uh, in the industry a mid-sized practice. We're a little less than 50 people, um, and we compete with firms that are significantly larger than us. And I think our success is really driven by a huge knowledge base in the firm and understanding for a very comp complex regulatory environment, which is really the nature of what the Bay Area and San Francisco is like. Yeah. How do you navigate? through the, the complexities of, of San Francisco and, and building. Is, um, is that too loaded of a question? No, or? not loaded at okay. all. Okay. Pa patience is the first word. Okay. Uh, openness to listen. Uh, clearly, in any environment, it doesn't really matter where you're working. You know, there's people who are going to love your work, and there's going to be people who are going to hate your work. We are very much about a sort of process. We have learned uh, very, very, very well how to navigate the complex uh, regulatory environment 
government, whether it involves design review or other regulatory issues. Um, and so coupled with the caliber and the quality of design, uh, which we believe is always very context-rich at every scale, we're also sort of uh, very much entrenched with an understanding for what the process is about. And, and I would say in the real estate industry, we, uh, we really are one of the sort of hallmark practices in terms of an understanding for what real estate development is like in, in any particular type of use. So is that where your your, your uh, sweet spot? Yeah. 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 That's, I would say that. And, and the work that we've actually done for uh, institutions like, you know, City of San Francisco or even UC systems uh, have been borne by um, uh, a selection committee or individuals who are really interested in uh, using private sector delivery uh, processes because they tend to sort of be more, somewhat more efficient. Uh, and okay. I think in every one of those instances, we sort of brought that to bear, whether it's, you know, budget control or whether it's an understanding for subtleties about the, the delivery process or stuff like that. So that's really, you know, so that real estate sort of efficiency is really the nature of some of the things that we see as a backbone of our practice. Okay. How do you, uh, you, you work with, obviously, you were president of the AIA, correct? Yes. 87th, is it? 80, number 87. At number 87. And we were talking in the green room, which is actually uh, not the green room. It was the, the when the Stanford building is built in, was it 1917? Yep. 1917 is Thomas Jefferson was an architect. Yep. And it, it, describe a little bit about the practice from there to now. I know we don't have all, all that time, but... That, it, so the short version is uh, 1857, 13 architects got together with the intent to try and uh, create uh, architectural practice that utilized um, more specific standards. And before that, uh, you know, in a sort of, I would say, a sort of um, somewhat uh, descriptive way, it was always seen as a, quote, gentleman's profession. That's why we sort of said, you know, Thomas Jefferson, he sort of did it more as a hobby. Um, but a lot of the stuff up to that point was born by um, people who were patrons or stuff like that. So uh, 1857 is the beginning of the AIA and was probably the beginning of the sort of defined um, use of architecture that would require individuals to have specific training. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think as we were saying, you know, architecture is ultimately responsible for health and safety and welfare when uh, a registered architect in the in the state in which they practice, uh, it puts their seal on a set of drawings uh, that whether it's a house or, you know, that's designed by an architect or whether it's a, it's a big building. So a little over a dozen members and now the AA is what? Nine, nine, almost 90,000 members. 90,000 members. With 280 chapters and chapters in the middle. Middle East and in China uh, and in uh, London. Uh, so there's members pretty much scattered all across the world. So it is the largest architectural uh, professional association, and it, it focuses on everything from uh, advocacy on behalf of the practice to issues associated with sustainability or uh, gender equity or uh, continuing education or just sort of being a steward for the built environment in, in terms of the voice of, of architecture. So it's been uh, it's it's a very uh, it's a very successful organization in terms of both its national level and state level and also local level. And there's five chapters in the Bay Area that are a member of the AIA. Well, how do you manage that many people? Mm. I'm not 
not that you manage mm. them, but uh, you, you have to um, uh, be empathetic to, to everyone's voice and still uh, grow the chapter. And uh... That, actually, Tom, is the right way to describe it because with 90,000 members across the United States, you know, we in the Bay Area and California have our view of life uh, and the way we like to see it, but as you said, you know, everybody in in the U.S. has got a different perspective. And so your your objective um, is to try and find a balance and help the organization to move forward. When I presided over the organization, there was actually a board of almost 50 people uh, that were um, from different uh, locations in the United States based on their chapters. And, you know, everybody had their uh, view of things. But I think at the end of the day, the board uh, and uh, my role as the president of the organization was to try and create sort of common ground. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. It, it is a challenge to always make sure you're listening and always trying to provide a balance. And there is no different than our political world. There's people who are on the uh, progressive side and there's people on the conservative side. And you try and find common ground associated with, with what architecture is about and what it means. Because in my mind, it's not a, it's not a political agenda. I mean, the, the current dynamic, uh, you know, under the Trump administration, but sustainability in the Bay Area, we are way out front in that. And I am always a huge proponent and our practice is a proponent of why that is so important. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I, that I live in practice here because we're able to sort of do the things that we know are necessary for society. Yeah. How, how much would, uh, working with people and actual architecture, would you ever put a percentage if you could even do it? Thank you. You have to work with people, 50% 50% of the time, 60% mm. or architect designed, uh, you know, 50, 60. Is there a percentage if you can quantify it as to uh, how much you work with people and how much you actually do design? Um, I would say, and depending on the scale of work that you do, you know, if you're doing a single family house as a custom thing, you're dealing with the, the users in a very intimate way. Uh, I would say always your client is the ultimate decision maker. And so whatever design you produce, um, and there are there are some architects who basically say it's my way or the highway. But in overwhelming circumstances, you really need to follow the lead of your client because it's either responsive to the, the quality and the character of the design or the nature of what they want to achieve out of their project. So I would say, Tom, it's sort of balanced. I would say maybe 25% owner and two-thirds uh, or 75% uh, design in terms of your delivering the design. For the, but you're always in this sort of feedback mechanism at every stage of the way. Make sure that's consistent with what the client's aspirations and goals are. Yeah, and speaking of the feedback, especially working with the city of San Francisco on the renovation for City Hall, how did that come about, mm. and how did it ultimately end up so beautiful, uh, and, and if you're at liberty to say? Yes, okay. I am at liberty to say. So um, the precipitator, uh, if you might remember, was the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, which damaged the building in a significant way, uh, and um, they needed to secure funds from the federal government, and they need to acquire their own funds. But um, we uh, interviewed for the project. We then were asked to put together a team. The team consisted of 
four other architectural firms, and 25 other specialty consultants. Um, a very, very uh, complex project that involved historic preservation of a National Register landmark building, uh, the importance of accommodating what is known as base isolation, which would protect the building from a maximum credible earthquake. And I would say um, those of you who might remember that Probably one of the, the great heroes was actually Willie Brown, who was the mayor at that point, because he is the patron of quality and design. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Oceania is the largest orga- international organization working solely to protect the oceans. Since... 2001, it has protected more than 1 million square miles of ocean and innumerable sea turtles, sharks, dolphins, and other creatures. Oceana is also helping to restore the world's wild fish populations to serve as a sustainable food source for people. For more information or to donate, visit oceana.org. That's O-C-E-A-N-A.org. And now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Clark Manis, architect and principal at Heller Manis. You can check them out at www.hellermanis.com. That's hellermanis.com. Clark, what recent projects have you worked on or are you working on currently, uh, say within the last year? So uh, a couple of noteworthy projects, um, several in San Francisco, uh, one in particular in Oakland. So um, one of them is the, uh, I would describe it as the race to the sky in San Francisco. Uh, One is the tall Salesforce Tower. The other one is our 181 Fremont Tower, uh, 800 feet in height. The Salesforce Tower is uh, 1,100 feet in height. Uh, we are not the architect for the Salesforce Tower, we're the architects for 181 Fremont. So very excited about that as it begins to sort of come down the home stretch to being finished. Uh, the other is a mega project called Oceanwide Center that we have been partnered with uh, Foster and Partners, Norman Foster's firm based in London. Uh, that is two towers of mixed use uh, at, in the, trans, at the San Francisco Transit Center. Uh, one at uh, one tower at 900 feet, one at 600 feet. So again, you see that we really are uh, positioned nice. in a way that we really like to create density. Uh, and then other projects in the sort of recent past include residential projects like the Infinity, uh, which was one of the first uh, condominium projects built in San Francisco. And then the probably the more recent one is a project in Oakland, which is the uh, old uh, Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center. We are working with the developer, uh, ODI, and the city of Oakland in terms of uh, re uh, reprogramming that building for uh, use. There is a historic theater and the conversion of the arena to commercial use uh, and and some public amenities. And so, as you can see, this sort of mix of everything from brand new uh, high high rise buildings to historic buildings is really some of the things that are on the on the in the works. How and, do you work with the historic buildings and to keep keep that integrity? So um, the it- the sensitivity obviously obviously, is to try and understand the era in which the buildings are built. Um, There are some standards that you often see that are 
uh, federal standards about uh, consistency with the original character. But I think, uh, you know, mine and our firm's philosophy has always been that we are looking to create a seamless balance between the great architecture was created in a, a sort of pr uh, earlier era, you know, the one that we were talking about earlier, early 1900s, mm -hmm. relative to sort of current technology. And as you would well validate, you know, the, the, the caliber of materials that you can use these days is far beyond that. But sometimes you're challenged by the quality of the materials um, that projects can often afford, and you're always aspiring to sort of quality materials. Uh, how do you know... What you know, I, I noticed on uh, your, some of your buildings, you have great range with your company. Uh, uh, it's you've got from historic to now. Um, is that just kind of your makeup or culture within yeah. your firm? Yeah, it, uh, it, okay. it, it is exactly that. I think it is the nature of our aspirations. We are not really, um, we're not, we've never been one to sort of duplicate. We've done, even if we had a program that was similar to uh, another project that we might have done in the past, we would still respond in the design in a different way, context rich. It's not in the same location. It could be in a neighborhood uh, or it could be downtown or it could be in a suburban location, but we're always looking for those cues. And we're also looking for the use of sort of forward-looking expressions in, in the character of the building. So back to your question about historic context is sort of one thing that you sort of look to. The other is when you new new buildings, you're looking to sort of new ways that you can either make the building more uh, environmentally responsible in terms of sustainability, safer for its occupants through uh, elevating very, sometimes very technical and mundane things are a big leap in terms of what we see that we can offer. How is, is sustainability a, a large component of your practice? Um, I would say it's a given okay. in every project that we do. And I would say the Bay Area always being at the leading edge has helped to sort of facilitate that with uh, some of the, the goals and, and the guidelines that have been established. So, you know, we are the project that I was describing earlier, the 181 Fremont project is a LEED Platinum, which is the highest rating the LEED uh, gives to projects. And it is uh, everything from water recycling to an energy conserving skin. So the answer to your question is, you know, we don't see it as a sort of outlier or as a sort of ladder inclusion. We really uh, are always interested in trying to reflect and incorporate that thinking from the outset of the design process. And we are always nudging and, and pressing our clients to sort of be able to sort of do as much as we possibly can. <laughs> How do you board. press them? Is, is it something? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you remind them overly, you remind them multiple times in a nice way, and then you get to the fifth or sixth time, and you say, you know, I've told you five times, uh, I'll continue to tell you, and then if you tell me I don't want to hear it again, I guess you just sort of try and do what yeah. you can. But you, you always are trying to, I would say, maybe the words cajole them okay. in, in a way nice that way. allows them to understand. And I would say the, the, the client base here is much more sophisticated and much more um, in tune with what that is. And, you know, to what I said earlier, it's sometimes a matter of dollars that they have available for the project. But they all ultimately see the, the marketing value of it. They see the long-term energy uh, savings that they get out of it. How much different is it working with uh, uh, another country in that dynamic? With the people involved, so I would say the the preponderance of experience with work in China 
uh, has been that it has been, uh, or at least, you know, up till sort of the last year or so where they've begun to sort of get concerned about sort of weird architecture, which we were never really doing, um, is that they are looking for creativity. And I would say for the entire duration of our practice there, it's been enlightening. It's been supportive. They have enabled us to do things that perhaps we might not have been able to do here because the either the design controls or the regulatory constraints would prevent us from doing it. So it's been it's been a good it's been a great experience and uh, something that I think that we will continue to do in terms of that. How do you do? You, do they seek you out? Do you seek them? Yes. Is it, is it mutual? Or? Well, the the beginning of our experience in China was a result of a mayoral visit to the United States. Uh, to meet with the mayor of San Francisco. We were invited to sort of talk to him about the level of sustainability. They really liked, they obviously loved San Francisco. They loved the sort of caliber of it. And I think sort of over time, uh, we have been able to sort of nurture that. And, you know, like any brand or any name, we have developed in the course of the more than 12 years uh, a um, reputation for the kind of work that we do and, uh, in, I would say, overwhelming amount of uh, situations have been uh, invited to competitions, okay. have been uh, uh, asked to provide work. But, you know, the work has been everything from uh, public agencies or city agencies or county agencies in China to private sector developers. Okay. We talked about this before and uh, really wanted to touch upon it. Somewhat at length, because I think it's really relevant, is that the hand drawing in the digital world, how did you really uh, want to take a lead in that or what really sparked you to say, you know what, I'm, I'm really going to um, put something together and uh, bring this to the forefront in architecture? So um, when I started my educational training, you know, overwhelmingly hand drawing was the sort of, it was a given, you know, parallel rules, T-squares and the like were sort of a, a part of the assumption. And you, you ask somebody who's 25 years old and they say, oh, what? Um, so, uh, and then I would probably say that uh, our son, uh, who is in technology, uh, had the wherewithal. He's a Stanford graduate as well. I'm very proud of that. Great. That he, um, he, I sort of encouraged him and he sort of uh, encouraged me in terms of the uh, interest uh, in the use of technology. And our firm uh, has been able to sort of encourage that, facilitate it. I would describe myself as a, a champion of it, one that helps to sort of uh, create that stewardship and opportunity to that. But I think back to your uh, question is that I think the use of technology is an exceptional thing in our era, and it's developed the drawing process in a way that there is far fewer um, aspects mm -hmm. that are uh, grunt work, or there is still grunt work, but there's, but the importance of the sort of hand drawing is a part of the connection to the brain and your ability to sort of express yourself. So whether it's a freehand drawing or it's a sketch or it's taking your eyes off the computer and thinking about what you're doing because, you know, as I said to you earlier, you know, buildings are, they live in real life. They <laughs> leak and they have, they have sound problems and they have a lot of things and you need to sort of think through the relationship 
relationships that you do. And I've often said to, to staff who are very proficient in a variety of ways that it's really important to use your brain because it's really easy to let the com- sort of computer take over. But you need to sort of use your uh, freehand. You need to use your sketching ability. You need to use your thinking ability in the course of developing the concept and often taking a momentary break for trying to understand what you're actually trying to achieve. Yeah, you were talking about your four-year-old grandson and mm-hmm. how you've, uh, uh, yep. you put, put that in. How did you... Uh, so yeah. wa- watching him, and it's uh, just a, <laughs> just a great pleasure. He is, um, he is incredibly gifted, uh, in, obviously, as any grandparent would say, but, <laughs> but the use of his building with Lego, and uh, I'm, I'm sort of his um, champion, and I sort of now at this Good point one. at four years old, he's able to do a lot of very complicated stuff, and I sort of stand and give him the, in the, in the little pieces. <laughs> but I think the thing that I've seen in the last year or so is he's got this ability to actually draw from what he remembers. He sees a detail and he draws it. And I said to our daughter-in-law, it's like, you know, you have that sort of skill too. And I said, you need to encourage him to continue to draw because the more that you draw, the longer you do it, the better you are in terms of being able to be confident. And a lot of people, as Tom, you would all would attest, are afraid of drawing because they think they don't draw well enough. But it's not because they haven't started early enough. It's because they just feel inadequate in their ability to do it. So the earlier you start, the more comfortable you become. You don't have to be a, a great artist, but you can still be able to express yourself in a way in drawings that basically have an idea associated with it, or whether it's a cartoon or whether it's a detailed drawing. So it's I think it's a, it's a great life skill in, in conjunction with being able to read and think and stuff like that. Yeah, I think there's some cognitive uh, yeah. uh, benefits that uh, there's probably studies done on that, yeah. but I'm not yeah. sure if, well, if it's that factors it's a, into it. It's a left and right brain thing. It's, you okay. know, it's, it's the way that is. But I think the sort of blend to your question is it's one of those things that's really important. Oh, great. Now, how do you... Uh, Put that into your the culture of uh, of your firm. Do you that that sort of cognitive uh, so, connection that's still real in addition to the digital world? So I would say that we have been very fortunate, and we have attracted some of the brightest uh, in terms of their skill set. We encourage people in terms of their thought process and the way they develop it. Some are very good in uh, developing concept designs in the early stages. Others are better at developing the details of building, um, but I would say the skill set is really sort of important. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM. For nearly 100 years, Save the Children has been creating brighter futures for the world's kids. In the U.S. and countries around the globe, Save the Children provides assistance to more than 143 million children. It provides what every child deserves, a healthy start. The opportunity to learn and care when disaster strikes. If you'd like to learn more or to make a donation, visit savethechildren.org. That's savethechildren.org. And now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Clark Manis, architect and principal at Heller Manis. You can check them out at hellermanis.com. That's hellermanis.com. Clark, what other, other than the, uh, in addition to the AIA, you're involved with a lot of leadership uh, organizations. Uh, what's the, the latest one that you're in? There's so many that you, you're a part of. 
So, um, so Tom, I would probably start by saying that um, uh, I have always sort of felt, and maybe as a result of my parents' involvement in social services or psychology or that sort of helping that, you know, it's one to be part of a, a great architectural practice. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the other just sort of, I would say, give back to your community or your profession. Um, so the latest uh, honor I would describe is um, I was appointed uh, last May uh, by Mayor Libby Shaft to the Oakland Planning Commission, and uh, I have been serving on that commission in reviewing uh, major projects. And so um, it's... Um, What's that like? How do you, it, how do you keep it, that empathy? It, it's, um, well, <laughs> the, the the first thing is you have to be a good listener and be patient. Uh, and every, it's just like in a democracy, everybody's got their opportunity to share their thoughts. And all you want is you want them to be able to share it in a way that is um, polite and rational and maybe not necessarily <laughs> rational, but, but polite in a way that they are respectful of others' opinions, <laughs> because there's going to be that spectrum. Um, And um, so then sort of bringing my training, uh, and I am uh, the only architect on that commission. There's a landscape architect. There's uh, a couple of uh, folks from uh, uh, nonprofit housing development uh, and community activists and uh, land use. And so it um, it is a pleasure to be able to help Oakland at a time where it is uh, being transformed, uh, and I've lived there for a long time, is being transformed by the um, development cycle in the in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area relative to where people want to live and where they want to mm-hmm. work. And so I've been on the side of being on that commission to evaluate and support or critique or provide some insight or or uh, recommendation on projects that would come before us and big projects. Are and you small an architect, designer, contractor, community, engineer? Community issues. You can alike. find the perfect so, products for your design. Um, I've been plus all um, the information you need I've to finish your construction documents and written specifications. The contribution on modeler.com. Yeah. How how it's have you a tool seen for architects and other design professionals five years. featuring products from over um, three hundred fifty brands. Like you can search many, for products, see how they've like been used by others, compare the them with similar items, so ask sort of manufacturers specific um, questions, like San then access the information sort of as well as the BIM, of where CAD, is on Revit files it's you need to populate great, your construction drawings. We at KZSU stand for thank Modeler.com for their generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of a modern architect. What you know, it is as a place. It's got you know, as the mayor would say, it's got this sort of special sauce. It's got great. <laughs> it's got this great diversity. It's got great uh, locations associated with transit lines. It's uh, against the bay. It's got a lot of things, and it's often sort of been sort of uh, behind the scenes. And so, what's really happening now is there's a lot of people who are now moving and working there, or moving to work there. Uh, who really feel that there's a real change in the works as an option to live. Not that it wasn't before, but as 
an option to uh, higher-priced uh, communities in the Bay Area, whether it's on the peninsula or whether it's in San Francisco or Marin. So it's been um, it's a, been a refreshing uh, experience in terms of of listening to people's concerns, hopefully making uh, recommendations and decisions that are only in support of the city's goals of keeping its uh, character uh, unique, which, you know, amongst Bay Area cities, it does have an interesting and unique character. Certainly. I, I notice here in accomplishments, architecture for humanity. I love that. You got to tell me, what is the architecture for humanity? So the organization um, is no longer operating because it oh. had pretty significant financial challenges like many nonprofits. But it's an organization that started about 15 years ago. Uh, husband, wife, founders. I was on the board for three years. And um, the thing that sort of drew me to uh, agreeing to serve on its board was its role in um, disaster locations. So their hmm. work in the Gulf Coast after Katrina, their work in Haiti uh, after uh, uh, the hurricane, uh, places in the world that have been uh, challenged by uh, serious uh, natural disasters. And they, as an organization, always were doing a, an amazing job of helping people, whether it was on housing or community things. So I uh, agreed to serve on the board to sort of provide my sort of architectural acumen, if you will, uh, on things that would sort of aid that because I am um, I'm a huge proponent of, um, you know, the word resilience, which is the word that gets thrown around a lot about um, communities being capable of responding after disaster. And uh, I go back to my experience, and we can talk a little bit about it, Tom, yeah. after the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. And that was sort of my uh, sort of the, the seminal event that I would say that really sort of galvanized my um, interest in disaster response and how cities and communities uh, come back after disasters. Oh, terrific. I like this, uh, this quote here. It says, broaden the dialogue of public interaction. That's a kind of description there. And you and I were talking about, uh, I thought, um, this isn't a plug, but uh, uh, an architect as mayor. <laughs> really, really. But uh, elaborate a bit on that. Broaden the dialogue of public interaction, because I think it falls right in line with that. Yeah. Maybe we not. But... So so there are uh, several, and I probably off the top of my head, except for the discussion we had earlier about Thomas Jefferson, there are <laughs> yeah. several uh, individuals across the United States uh, who both, one, served in Congress, uh, or two were mayors of their cities. And they uh, were, as I said to you earlier, you know, their roles as mayors or Congress uh, Congress. Uh, folks, uh, <laughs> Congress folks, Congress folks, exactly. <laughs> Congress women, Congress men um, were really uh, they have to take a sort of bigger uh, perspective, create a larger umbrella architecture, urban design planning or a sort of subset of that. So they've got a city to run. So I would say the training 
you know, this is my my view, and I think many, the training of an architect in terms of looking at a broad spectrum of issues is a sort of natural uh, stepping stone to want to serve as a mayor or something like that. But as you would well agree, it's always a challenge on the sort of political front that the issues that are germane to architecture planning are not necessarily issues that the politics want to do. And as you said, it's really about trying to listen to the community, trying to assimilate their concerns, trying to find good solutions, good alternatives, uh, good things that, that can come out of that discussion. And I think that sort of listening skill and that ability to sort of see the future is is the nature of why some feel that being mayor or being a member of Congress is something that they can do uh, in a good way. Yeah. How do you, uh, when you look at a project, are you looking at it, uh, I would think obviously for the future, but do you have a, a number, <coughs> uh, um, for example, the uh, Oceanwide Center, do you say we want this building here to in 100 years to look you know, better than it is now, or we want it to sustain itself for 150 years. Do you put a, a number? Is it, is it even possible to do that, at least mentally? The answer is no. Okay. But to your primary question, you always want your buildings to last the <laughs> test of time. It is really an important thing. I mean, buildings go through multiple uses. The Probably the best example that we all sort of can relate to are industrial buildings built at the turn of centuries, repurposed to uh, residential lofts or workspaces or stuff like that. So, you know, we always are trying to think ahead in terms uh, buildings having multiple uses, being able to be repurposed. Uh, and clearly, as you said, you know, you want your buildings to last a long time. They're going to last long after you're here on this earth. <laughs> and uh, very much like many of the sort of great buildings on the Stanford campus, they have uh, the, the test of time has been one that multiple generations have been able to appreciate relative to the caliber and carefulness of the patron and the architect that created them. Uh, there's a, here's a couple of questions for you. One is, how do you develop the partnerships with another architecture firm? And uh, two, this, this, we'll go to that. That'll be the second one. The first one is, do you have any sort of plaque or something of remembrance on the buildings that you do that say that you were there? Like, mm. like, uh, not, like an author of a book. And that's part of why we have this show is to give re recognition to architects and those in, uh, influencers that, that it's like a, a great book. That doesn't you don't know who the author is like this is a wonderful mm -hmm. story it changed my life who wrote it oh we don't know I mean imagine that and that's how often most buildings are like do you have any sort of uh, remembrance or, or any uh, recognition physically on the actual buildings that you've designed and worked with so the answer is yes and okay good question on your part like buildings on the Stanford campus designed by you know great architect H H Richardson mm -hmm. You're, you hit it right on is, you know, somebody walks by and sees that it was designed in 19, built in 1917, but you don't know who the players are. Uh, <laughs> we are fortunate that in San Francisco, as a result of the uh, planning controls that were adopted in the mid-80s, that every downtown building, this is just in downtown, must carry the plaque of the architect 
and the developer who did the project. So we are very fortunate That's to have, have our name on many, many buildings. And uh, as a result of that, I think you are correct in that you always want to know. And I think those who become real aficionados of architecture begin to see the style <laughs> of people because everybody's got their little sort of yeah, tell style. Tell us the one about your daughter. How yeah. she noticed that She's not in the field, correct? She's not in the field. She's, a, she's a market, yeah. marketing and digital. Okay. Uh, and uh, she was in high school on a, a trip to um, uh, Seattle. And the Experience Museum in Seattle was under construction. Uh, she sent me a little picture, and uh, she had traveled enough with myself and my wife and her son on architectural tours all across the world. And she said, looks like a Frank Geary building. And I said, you got it right, because <laughs> it had all the sort of uh, curves and uh, eccentric lines that, you know, Frank's work is synonymous with. So it was really sort of interesting for her to sort of be able to pick that up. Yeah. And how do you develop those partnerships with uh, do they come to you you go to them or or the the, uh, the owners say you know what i'd like you guys to work together uh, see how this goes and uh, how does so good question and here's the way i would describe it sometimes they are as you lastly described shotgun marriages you know <laughs> client says you know something each of you has a great skill set that I want to put together. I want you to collaborate together. And then it's really about the collaborators, the architecture firm, sitting down and agreeing to each other's roles and, and the drawings that they're going to do. So that's a sort of one scenario. The others are precipitated by us, uh, the Oceanwide Center Project, which we are partnered with Foster and Partners, was one that we pursued together and we were selected in the course of a uh, three-firm competition. So we precipitated that ourselves. And then the sort of last scenario is ones where, like City Hall, where the client uh, has um, city uh, goals associated with uh, either um, minority participation goals or something like that. And we begin to sort of form uh, a team, a bigger team of firms that we feel that there's synergy with, that we feel that there's skill overlap in or stuff like that. And so I would say in the latter two examples, either we're, we precipitate ourselves or the, the governmental agency or client precipitates it, and then the sort of other is where there's this sort of shotgun marriage. And I would say in nine out of ten circumstances, we have always made uh, great relationships work. I can't think of many, <laughs> if any, that really ended in a disaster um, because at the end of the day, you want your architecture to sort of have a – uh, quality and a character and the, the working together like in any form is really an important piece of that. How are you how do you work with the the uh, the other architect firm and know that has there ever been a chance where an opportunity where it it looked like ah, this is not going so well and it turned out beautifully? Can you even think of one or I actually can't think okay. of that, but I will say that in the beginning, everybody's sort of testing their boundaries. So there's some egos involved. There's, okay. oh, there's always egos. There's okay. egos like, well, who's making the last, uh, who's, <laughs> who's making the final decision? Well, not, not you or not me, the client. And so I would say in the overwhelming circumstances, it really comes down to personality, you know. 
know, people either feel that they are in it to work together to for success. And at the end of the day, what you really never want to have is you never want the client to sort of have to intercede and say, you know something, you both are misbehaving teenagers. I'm going to fire. <laughs> I'm going to fire both of you. And uh, you know something, I don't want to. I don't ever want to work with you again. So it's never a good thing for the client to intercede and feel like they have to be the parent yeah. in the situation. So you're always sort of uh, uh, desirous of, of creating a relationship that actually will create a great project out of it. With architecture constantly evolving, the expectations for uh, for emerging architectural buildings evolve as, evolve as well. What's what's changed in your experience over the last say four or five years? Um, I would say that some of the things that have changed, and this is the sort of nature of the profession that. Um, there's always a desire to have uh, new young blood in the profession. It takes a long time uh, to really sort of feel very confident about your skills as an architect because it's a very complex profession. You you mm-hmm. sort of hit on that earlier. It's a, it's a unique blend of science and art um, as a result of that. Is it the last five years as sustainability increased or have you seen more of it throughout the United States uh, as much as in the Bay Area? Um, yes, I would say yes, okay. M- much more so in, in, in nationally. And I think it depends upon where you are, whether it's city or state, relative to the encouragement of sustainability as a sort of given. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU 90.1 FM, Stanford. The Loop is a radio show featuring electronic music ranging from house, techno, to downtempo, and everything that's good in the underground. Each week, the show features releases, exclusive mixes, top picks, interviews, and live guest DJs from around the world. That's The Loop with Drew Deep from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Mondays. Now back to The Modern Architect. We are talking today with Clark Manis, architect and principal at Heller Manis. Please visit their website at www.hellermanis.com. That's hellermanis.com. Clark, are there any suggestions or recommendations that you have for an aspiring architect or uh, uh, engineering uh, or designer? What, what, what would you suggest for them uh, if it now in the future? Stay with it. You see it growing. Um, always see growing. It's one of those, uh, it's one of those careers, uh, at least in, in, in my mind, that is less about a job than more about a sort of a lifestyle and a sense of accomplishment. Um, those who might be in middle school, in high school, um, always can sort of avail themselves of, you know, the internet is a very powerful thing now in terms of your ability to sort of uh, appreciate what's going on, visiting cities, visiting buildings, uh, seeing what you like, seeing if you think you've got the right sort of skill set. And then we have, over the length of our practice, have always um, been um, involved with schools of architecture uh, in uh, supporting internship programs 
uh, where, you know, whether it's uh, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, or it's Berkeley, or some others, uh, we have been uh, involved in their internship programs to help immerse um, students who perhaps are in the middle of uh, a program in architecture or at the beginning of it. And even those that are not, even they might be in high school and say, you know, I'm interested. You know, we always have the sort of uh, question that a friend or a colleague might pose. It's like, you know, my son or daughter is interested in architecture. What's your suggestion? I say, well, bring them by the office. Okay. We'll, <laughs> do you really? we'll show them, we'll okay. show them what we have to do. We'll show them whether. Do they run away? Or no, you know, I would say they either they don't run away. They they gain a heightened appreciation for architecture, and they say, mm, "Not for me." Okay. Uh, or they say, "You know, I love it, and I want to go to school. And what should I what should I do?" And then you sort of begin to say, "Here's the kind of skills that you need to learn as an architect, and here's where you might think about going and immerse yourself in it." So it's you know to to your sort your fundamental question. Um, it is a long path. Uh, it okay. is one that really requires uh, a lot of training, a lot of insight. You, uh, as a registered architect in in practice, when you stamp a set of drawings, there is great responsibility in the building that you design and is constructed. And so you're always sort of making sure that you feel comfortable and confident about what you're able to do. So it's to your, to your real uh, primary uh, thought on this is we try and provide an opportunity for those who are interested to seeing what the profession is like, encouraging them for those that think they want to be encouraged, and even, I would say, encourage those who might be patrons or clients because oh, they they okay. are just as valuable. And, you know, and you would validate this too, those who are in the industry at large who might be involved with product development, product research, product delivery, <laughs> they are also ones that you really also want to uh, aid in the process so that they can be uh, of great assistance in specifying a particular product that you might not be familiar with and need to be exposed to. So it's a pretty broad spectrum, and it's, you know, we live in the built world. Yeah. I mean, it's there's no Very doubt true. about it. And so being able to sort of appreciate and understanding what that is versus sort of being afraid of it. Yeah. Uh, in addition to your uh, your wife, uh, your your children, and your grandson, who else in- inspires you? Uh, I would say my mom and dad. My dad is no longer alive, but my mother probably, I would say, in, in an amazing way, she has had um, cerebral palsy since birth, um, a uh, mild disability, great sort of mental acumen, but um, physical disability is one that she's lived with her entire life. So in any project, I feel that I bring a heightened awareness of those people who are um, physically disabled, you know, and maybe not just physically disabled, but but that's sort of what I would, you know, relative to access to buildings, whether it means accessible entrances or being able to think about the size of bathrooms, just intuitively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my mother is sort of um, who she is in life uh, and what she sort of has, go, has done. Right. She's, yeah. you know, she has really inspired me uh, in many ways relative to the sort of physical environment and the ones that people often are challenged by. And, you know, you, you would you would validate this that at any point in anybody's life, you 
could be disabled from a ski accident to uh, uh, a birth accident, you know, as a result of that. Yeah. What do you think of this quote here, Clark? I've got here. Good buildings come from good people, (laughs) and all problems are solved by good designs by Stephen Gardner. Gardner. What's your, what's your thoughts? Uh, on that? Great aspirations. Okay. I, I don't know if it, I don't know if that always applies, but I would say that's always what you expect. Uh, you know, there's okay. there's good and bad people in the world, <laughs> and they do good and bad architecture, <laughs> and uh, I think it could be reversed. But I think uh, to to your to, to the quote, it's it's very aspirational. That's always what you hope for, is that somebody is trying to do good in the world. Okay. And as you said earlier, you know, the buildings in many instances will outlive the individual who's involved in the design or engineering or construction of it. Yeah. Is that is that a, a culture again in your office where everyone's kind of thinks that way? I think that I think everybody sort of fundamentally does. I, I think they may not articulate it, but I right. but I think that you know we have always had a wonderful spectrum of of uh, people who are part of the firm. Uh, great diversity, great understanding, great sort of experience in doing that. Uh, I often say to staff that you know they end up getting spoiled with the scale <laughs> of buildings that we do. You know, it's it's easy to sort of do um, small, modest-sized buildings, but we are fortunate to do buildings of significant scale and are. Uh, at the end of the day, are city building projects. They 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 basically form the urban environment um, in a lot of instances, and so we feel a sort of obligation. Yeah, Clark, it's been a pleasure having you here today. We really appreciate you coming out to Stanford and being our guest. Thank you. So, Tom, this is a wonderful show. I think you've got a great format here. Thank you. Uh, your list of people that you've attracted is uh, is great to hear. Uh, good to get it on the air, and uh, I will be more than happy to uh, help you find other colleagues or people in the industry who would only continue the program that you've started here. So kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. appreciate that. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dior. Our guest today has been Clark Manis, architect and principal of Heller Manis, an architecture firm dedicated to more than 25 years of developing a diversified, client-oriented firm that is a design and sustainability leader in the profession. Visit them, their website, at hellermanis.com. That's hellermanis.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and it's a production of KZSU Radio. The recording engineer and production manager is Akshay Jaggi. The assistant engineer is McGregor Joyner, and we're all assisted by Bryce Carter. The executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. Thanks for tuning in. Listen in again next week for another episode of The Modern Architect. Thank you. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with over 350 building product manufacturers, large and small. Modeler.com works with architects from 80% of the top 100 architecture and design firms to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for their building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com 
for their generous underwriting of their production and the broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. <laughs>